Hello, all you spooktacular people, and welcome to the History Goes Bump podcast. This is executive producer Kelly from California. If you want to become an executive producer and receive some great bonus episodes, click the tab at historygoesbump.com. And with no further ado, prepare to get your history on, along with some chills and thrills. Oh, and a word of advice as you drift off to sleep tonight. If you can't wake up from a nightmare, maybe you're not asleep. <laughs> History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 246th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we are going to be in Tennessee at the Carton Plantation. And this was suggested to us by our listener and executive producer, Tammy McCarroll Burroughs. There is a lot of history involved when it comes to this plantation. It's uh, a very bloody battle. So we've got some interesting hauntings going on here. Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa. Chanel. Hey, Chanel. Carissa, who spells her name with a C-H. Hello, Carissa with a C-H. Drea. Hi, Drea. Crow with a K. Hello, Crow with a K. Melissa with two S's. Hey, Melissa with two S's. Danice. It's D-A instead of D-E. Hello, Danice with an A. (laughs) And Deborah, who ends her name with an O-R-A-H. Hello, Deborah with an R-O-A-H. And now, this moment, Naudity. In today's moment in Oddity was suggested by listener Elizabeth Fatika. There was a time in the late 1800s when northwest Alabama and southern middle Tennessee struggled to maintain law and order. Criminal men formed gangs of thieves, murderers, and bushwhackers, and they would terrorize people living in small towns. The most notorious gang at this time was the Clifton Shebang, which was nicknamed the Buggers. A man named Thomas Clark was their leader. Everybody called him Mountain Tom, and he was one bad dude. He deserted from both the Union and Confederate armies. By 1872, he claimed to have killed 19 people, which included three people at the Wilson Plantation, three Confederate soldiers, and a child. His gang had already raided the town of Florence in Alabama once before, and in September of that year, they decided to hit it again. The townspeople were fed up, and Florence City Marshal William Edward Blair rounded up a posse to head out at sunrise in pursuit of the gang of the three men. They cut up with the outlaws, and when Mountain Tom saw that they were outgunned, the gang surrendered. The men were taken back to Florence and thrown into the jail. Around midnight, a crowd of people gathered outside the jail set on bringing justice their way to the outlaws. 
They pulled guns on the jailer who refused to give them the key and took them in to a vacant lot across Pine Street behind the old Masonic Lodge and hanged them from a large tree in the lot. Three graves had already been dug for the men, but one of the men on the burial detail remembered hearing Clark boast that no one will ever run over Tom Clark. He told the others that were with him that instead of burying Mountain Tom in the cemetery, that they should bury him underneath East Tennessee Street so that everyone would run over Tom Clark. So, the notorious gang leader, who boasted that no one would ever run over him, now lays buried near the center of Tennessee Street and, to this day, is still run over daily. And that certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, This Month in History. In the month of February, on the 11th, in 660 B.C., the first emperor of Japan, Emperor Jimu, ascended to the throne, and that is today celebrated in Japan as National Foundation Day. During earlier periods in Japan, people were more loyal to regional leaders than national leaders, like the shogun or the emperor. Shintoism also had a number of deities that caused citizens to have competing loyalties. The government of Meiji Japan wanted to change this practice, and it designated the National Foundation Day as part of the modernization of Japan by the Meiji Restoration. The emperor had just been treated as one of the many Shinto gods. The Meiji government wanted the emperor to be worshipped as the god, and it promoted the imperial cult of emperor worship. They hoped this would ensure loyalty to the national government in Tokyo and outweigh any regional loyalties. In its original form, the holiday was named Empire Day. Empire Day was abolished following the surrender of Japan after World War II. The commemorative holiday was reestablished as National Foundation Day in 1966. Obviously, Japan no longer has an emperor, so all references to such a leader have been stripped from the holiday, and it is treated as a day to express patriotism and love of the nation. Customs include the raising of Japanese national flags and reflection on the meaning of Japanese citizenship. Franklin was a small town in Tennessee when the Civil War erupted. The war would bring the deadly Battle of Franklin to the city, leaving behind scars that would forever change the landscape of Franklin in various ways. Nearly 40 years before the war, a plantation named Carton would be built that would soon become the premier farm in the county. The plantation would play witness not only to the battle, but to political intrigue and much death and pain. For this reason, there are those who claim that Carton is haunted. There are also many stories of paranormal experiences that feature many different spirits. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Carnton Plantation. Abram Mowry Jr. was a state senator who founded the city of Franklin on October 26, 1799. He named the town for none other than Benjamin Franklin. Randall McGavick was born in 1768 in the state of Virginia. He eventually migrated to Tennessee and got involved in politics. Because of the politics, he became friends with President James K. Polk and President Andrew Jackson. He served as mayor of Nashville for a one-year term in 1824. 
McGavick completed construction on his mansion that he named Carton in 1826. The property was named after his father's birthplace in County Antrim, Ireland. The name Carton is from the Gaelic word cairn, which means a pile of stones. So that's good. It's like, I'm going to name my beautiful house a pile of rocks. I know. I'm not exactly sure why he did that because it is built out of bricks, but it doesn't really look like a pile of stones. No, not at all. Especially that back porch. Oh, it is gorgeous. And did you notice when we were looking at the video, it had haint paint on the roof of the double porch? Yes. A smokehouse was the first building built at Carton, and this was in 1815. The smokehouse would eventually be connected to the main house by a two-story kitchen wing. The mansion sat on 1,400 acres and was run as a plantation with crops that included wheat, corn, oats, hay, and potatoes. The McGavicks were also involved in raising and breeding livestock and thoroughbred horses. The mansion had 11 rooms and was built in the federal style out of red brick. The foundation was limestone with a tin roof, two dormer windows, and projecting in chimneys. The house was two stories with a central pedimented portico that was Greek Revival styled. The two-story portico contained four square ionic columns with beveled recessed panels and a vase-shaped balustrade on each level. The fascia above the first level had decorative scroll work and the doorway was flanked by columns and side lights with a semicircular fan light above. The back of the mansion had a two-level Greek Revival gallery with seven two-story Doric columns. The open roof porch ran the length of the house. The inside of Carnton was just as grand. The interior style was Greek Revival with fox painting, carpets, and a variety of wallpapers. The parlor had a Greek Revival fireplace mantle, and on the mantle sat a clock that still remains today as one of several pieces that are original to the McGavick family. A 200-piece china set in the dining room is original as well. A rocking chair was given to the family by President Andrew Jackson, and that still remains. Can you imagine having a rocking chair in your house? Oh, yeah, the president gave that to us. That would be kind of pretty cool. I can't stress enough how cool the back porch on this house is. When you're looking at it, you almost think you're looking at the front of the house because it has all of those Doric columns there, and it's two-story. But then you go around to the front, and you're like, no. And it's almost like they're two totally separate things just looks like two things that have been brought together that don't exactly go together because we're kind of used to if you've got bricks in the front the bricks go around to the back too that back area is absolutely gorgeous i would totally be sitting out there in a rocking chair maybe andrew jackson's president andrew jackson's and just listening to the sounds of the south i love just being outside and listening to the cicadias and everything just making their noises it's one of my favorite sounds it is and you know, one thing that I hadn't really thought about till you just said that, we moved about 15 minutes down the road from where we originally lived when we first moved here and lived in an apartment. And we could hear the cicadas outside of our apartment all the time. And I used to love having the door open so we could do that, especially in the spring. And we don't get them down here, really. I don't think I've ever heard them Not in yet. our neighborhood. Not yet, but I think a lot of the wildlife, it's a newer neighborhood, so I think it's starting to come. Because we didn't have really have a whole lot of birds and squirrels and stuff when we first moved here either. McGavick not only ran a farm, but he wanted gardens on the property. He started by planting cedars along the driveway leading up to the house. His son would add to this with more cedars and boxwoods. Randall's son, John, was a fan of Andrew Jackson Downing, who was considered the father of American landscape architecture. And he modeled a one-acre garden that was on the west side of the house after Downing's designs. This entailed square mini vegetable gardens that were bordered by ornamental shrubs with a large white picket fence around the entire garden. The garden eventually fell into neglect in later years, but was recreated in 1996. 
The peony, daffodil, and hosta collection of flowers found on the plantation today is composed entirely of varieties available in Middle Tennessee prior to 1869. For the green thumbs and flower lovers out there in our listenership, and while I love flowers, I definitely don't have a green thumb, you'll be interested to know that Carton Plantation houses the largest historic daffodil collection in the South. There are 40 varieties in the collection that date back before 1869. Wow, I'm definitely going to have to put this because we're planning on our road trip next year, possibly going through Tennessee. So I'll have to put this on our list because I would love to see it. Slaves were part of the workforce at Carton Plantation, and this continued even after Randall McGavick died in 1843. His son, John, inherited the property. He married his cousin, Carrie Winder, of Ducros Plantation, and the couple had five children. Only two of them would survive to adulthood. Another one of those sad stories of that time period. Can you imagine having five children and three of them die when they're young? That's why I have a hard time sometimes going through the historic parts of cemeteries because the ages on the stones are so, so young. John's net worth grew to about 339000 in 1860, which is equal to about $9.7 million in 2018. When the Civil War started, John sent most of his slaves to Louisiana so they wouldn't be taken by the authorities. John was too old at 46 to join the fight, but he did help and support groups of Southern soldiers. His wife sewed uniforms for relatives and friends. When federal troops took control of Middle Tennessee, they found out about the McGavick's efforts with aiding the South, and the Union took thousands of dollars of grain, horses, cattle, and timber from Carton Plantation. The last great battle of the Civil War and one of the bloodiest battles, the Battle of Franklin, came to Franklin, Tennessee on the afternoon of November 30th, 1864. It's amazing how many of these Civil War battles we say this about. It was one of the bloodiest. It seems like all of them were just incredibly bloody. And I think it's because of the tools that they had at that time. If you think about what a cannon can do and the bullets and stuff that they had back then. I can't even imagine. And they fought so close-knit, it wasn't like shooting something from far away. They were usually hand-to-hand almost. The battle would rage across the town and forever change the landscape there. As was the case with so many towns during the Civil War, most buildings were used as field hospitals. Confederate Lieutenant General John Bell Hood led his 33,000-man army of Tennessee into Franklin, where the Union's Major General John Schofield had already set a strong defensive line south of town with his 30,000 men. So you basically have two armies here that are facing each other with pretty much the same number of men. Hood's army took up a position two miles from the Union forces, with rolling farmland between them. At 4 p.m., Hood sent his troops out in two columns from the east and the west. This tactic proved successful, and the Union defense collapsed and fell back into a line closer to the city of Franklin. The next portion of the battle involved a massive frontal assault larger than Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. By the time this happened, it was already dark, so much of this skirmish was in the dark. The Union was having a hard time gaining ground until a brigade led by Colonel Emerson Updike arrived. Confederate General Stephen D. Lee's corps reinforced Hood's left, but it was not enough, and Hood's forces were driven back and suffered heavy losses. The Confederates suffered over 6,200 casualties, which included six dead Confederate generals. Total casualties for both sides numbered over 8,500. The Union left Franklin and left their wounded behind. Hood would continue on to Nashville for the later Battle of Nashville. Carnton Plantation became the largest temporary field hospital after the Battle of Franklin. 
A staff officer wrote that, quote, the wounded in hundreds were brought to the house during the battle and all the night after. And when the noble old house could hold no more, the yard was appropriated until the wounded and dead filled that, end quote. That really is quite the visual because this is a big home, a big mansion, and to think of it full and then the whole outside is filled up. Then you add to the fact that on Carton's back porch, four Confederate generals' bodies were laid out. These were Patrick R. Cleburne, Hiram B. Granbury, John Adams, and Otho F. Strahl. The McGavicks tended to nearly 300 soldiers inside their home. Half of those men had died by the next morning. Those that had survived were spread all throughout the property, including the slave quarters. Carrie McGavick's dress was blood-soaked at the bottom. The McGavick seven-year-old son, Winder, and nine-year-old daughter, Hattie, both witnessed everything and pitched in to help. To this day, Carton still serves as witness to the events of the horrible battle. Many of the floors are still stained from blood. The heaviest stains are found in one of the southern-facing bedrooms because it served as the operating room. And this home was carpeted. Back then, we know this was a real luxury to have wall-to-wall carpet in your home. So this blood had soaked all the way through the carpeting and into the wood. And I imagine, I'm not for sure, but I'm thinking that the house probably has carpet again, so you can't see these blood stains anymore, but they know that they're still there. You know, I can't even imagine just the horror and the raw emotions that would happen. First of all, having the battle right there and then having all of these soldiers there, especially for those two kids. I I can't imagine those two children witnessing, first of all, how terrifying to have a battle going on around your home because you're afraid you're going to die. And then you can only imagine, because they obviously did not have pain medicine. These were not really set up to be hospitals. So you can imagine that operating room where they were probably doing mostly amputations, what that must have sounded like and been like. And then just the 150 men, for sure, died after they were already wounded. And then you've got thousands sitting out in the field areas. It's just, I can't even imagine. Following the battle, the people of Franklin were tasked with burying the dead, which numbered 2,500. According to George Cohen's History of McGavick Confederate Cemetery, all of the Confederate dead were buried as nearly as possible by states, close to where they fell, and wooden headboards were placed at each grave with the name, company, and regiment painted or written on them. Over the next 18 months, the markers rotted and the writing disappeared. Many of the Union soldiers were reinterred in 1865 at the Stones River National Cemetery in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The McGavicks wanted to do something more formal, and in 1866, they set aside two acres of their land for a cemetery. The citizens of Franklin raised the funds that would be needed for the intense process of exhuming and reburying the soldiers. A man named George Cuppert led a team that moved the 1,481 soldiers. One civilian was buried in the cemetery as well. This was George's brother, Marcellus, who had died during the process of the reburials. The original names and identities of the soldiers were recorded in a cemetery record book by Cuppet, and he gave this to Carrie McGavick. The graveyard is called the McGavick Confederate Cemetery, and it is the largest privately owned military cemetery in the United States. The McGavicks maintained the cemetery for the rest of their lives. The cemetery is organized by state with 13 sections separated by a 14-foot pathway. Today, the cemetery is maintained by the Franklin Chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And when you look out at pictures of this, there are some tombstones that look like your standard military-type tombstones, but a lot of these look like uh, concrete blocks that are smaller on top of them. And I believe it's because they probably didn't know who some of these soldiers were if they'd lost their headstones. 
or if the carving had worn away, because obviously wood, I mean, it was only two years, but wood doesn't hold up real well. Yeah, definitely not in the southern states. After the war, Carton Plantation continued under a sharecropping arrangement with former slaves. John died in 1893, so Carrie managed everything, particularly the cemetery, until her death in 1905. She seemed to have a real soft spot for the cemetery. And I'm wondering if it's because she watched so many of them die. So maybe she felt a connection there. Well, and they died in her home. If she had a blood-soaked dress, she was caring to them and probably watched them die too. A prayer in the Confederate Veteran Magazine mentioned Carrie McGavick in 1905. We thank thee for the feeble knee she lifted up, for the many hearts she comforted, the needy ones she supplied, the sick she ministered unto, and the boys she found in abject want and mothered and reared into worthy manhood. In the last day they will rise up and call her blessed. Today she is not because thou hast taken her, and we are left to sorrow for the good Samaritan of Williamson County, a name richly merited by her. Winder inherited the plantation, but he died two years after that in 1907. His widow eventually sold the mansion in 1911, bringing to a close a century of family ownership. The story from this point is similar to others where the home passes through several hands and then falls into disrepair starting in the 1960s. The Carton Association formed in 1977 to raise money to buy and restore the mansion. This restoration was completed in the late 1990s. Today, the site is maintained by the Battle of Franklin Trust, a nonprofit organization which also manages the Carter House, which is another historic home not too far away from Carton Plantation. When Carton Plantation is talked about during the war, Carter House is mentioned too because both of them were in the middle of all this and they were a field hospital as well. The house is open for tours Monday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and on Sunday from noon to 5 p.m. There are many hauntings happening at the plantation and they mainly seem to date back to the Civil War. Carrie McGavick cared deeply about the fact that so many men lost their lives at Carton. That is why it was important for them to designate the cemetery. Her spirit is sometimes seen as a full-bodied apparition on the back porch that overlooks the Civil War Cemetery. She's either standing or sitting, and some witnesses claim that she floats over the backyard. Many believe she is watching over the cemetery. She would be Our Lady in White here because she is generally seen in a long white dress. A tour guide at the mansion, Margie Thesson, claimed that her daughter saw Carrie's ghost wearing a long pink gown. I'm not sure what color pink that was. So if it was a lighter pink, it, of course, could be mistaken for being pink rather than white or white could be mistaken for being pink. It would kind of depend upon what kind of reflection you were getting as well. Time of day, that kind of thing. The most seen apparitions belong to dead soldiers here, of course. The activity heightens at dusk when the battle was fought. It would seem one of the general spirits is at unrest. Ghost is thought to belong to General Pat Cleburne, since he matches the description of Cleburne with a mustache, a short beard, and piercing eyes. He is seen pacing the back porch and looking very worried as though he is fretting over the well-being of his men. A descendant of one of the men who was buried at the plantation visited one evening after the mansion was already closed to visitors. And I saw some people referencing him in their stories as Mr. P, so I'm thinking he clearly did not want to be identified. He decided to walk around the property and followed a path to the rear of the mansion. He was shocked to find a shadowy man wearing a uniform standing next to a horse as though he was preparing to get in the saddle when he arrived at the back. He figured it was a reenactor until the horse disappeared. The visitor saw another man dressed as a Confederate on the back porch, so he asked him, what happened to his horse? The soldier replied that it must have been shot, just like his own horse was shot. He expressed that he was very concerned now because they would be at the mercy of the enemy without horses. He also told the visitor that he better make sure he had his pistol. The man chuckled to himself and decided to go with the little act and asked what kind of gun the soldier used and informed him that he had no gun. The soldier became alarmed and turned to another soldier on the porch and said, Well, if we are going to die, let us die like men. 
He threw his hat in the Air Force fleet and vanished. The visitor then heard the sequence of the sounds of battle and a yell that said, Charge, men, charge. Then a swell of the sound of shots, shells, muskets, and cannons filled the air. A cacophony of rebel yells followed. And it was then that the visitor realized he'd been standing among a group of ghosts. He ran terrified to his car. He felt as though he really were in the middle of a battle. He returned to the plantation the next day when it was opened and he realized that the ghosts on the porch had been General Pat Cleburne. I don't know that I would have returned to Carton Plantation after having that experience. I guess you'd feel a little bit more comfortable if it's daytime and there's people around, but wow, I can't even imagine. You know, we hear similar stories of people who've been at the Gettysburg battlefield and hearing those kinds of noises or seeing the battles that are going on and having it happen all around them while they're there. And it would be, to me, terrifying, especially because I don't think he could see any of them once they started the fighting or whatever. They just disappeared. Yeah, I don't think I would have gone back for sure. Two spirits haunt the kitchen area of the mansion. In the 1840s, a young house servant girl was murdered in the kitchen by a jealous field hand who had become infatuated with her. She rejected his advances and he strangled her. Her spirit seems to have remained and is a mischievous one who likes to play tricks on the living. A curator at the house heard some noises from the small enclosed porch off the back of the house and decided to see what was going on. When she got back there, she found two panes of glass that had been taken down from a box of panes. Each was placed nicely on either side of the door. Not somewhere an employee would place them unless, of course, they wanted to get fired. Can you imagine? You don't want somebody to step on them. Not to mention that there was no reason to have those panes pulled out of the box. She thought it was the girl who had been murdered. The other spirit is thought to belong to a head cook who'd worked for the family during the Civil War years. This apparition has been seen floating in the hallway near the kitchen. Disembodied bustling noises are heard coming from the kitchen that include banging dishes and running water. Let me just say, if a ghost wants to come into my house and do my dishes, I think I'd be okay with that. Uh, Maybe. Other spirits found inside the house include a soldier who stays in one of the bedrooms. Picture of the mansion that was hanging on the wall in that bedroom has mysteriously crashed to the floor. Another time that same picture was found on top of the floor heater where it could not have fallen. Makes me wonder, is that the operating room bedroom by any chance? Hmm. A beautiful young girl with long brown hair appeared to a workman when he was in the second floor hallway. He quickly ran down the stairs when he realized she was transparent. After that, workman started going upstairs in pairs. Guess they didn't want to run into her again. She might have been beautiful, but uh, she's floating around. Yeah, I don't like that. Makes me wonder if that was one of the daughters that the McGavicks lost. Oh, possibly. Carton Plantation was the scene of a horrible battle. But even more, it was a place of immense pain and death. These kinds of emotions tend to feed paranormal activity, and that seems to be the case here. Here we have another battlefield where the soldiers still seem to think they are fighting the war and Carrie McGavick is still watching over the graveyard in the same way that she did when living. Is Carton Plantation haunted? That is for you to decide. Definitely a beautiful place to check out. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. We'd love to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did receive an email from Dee about the Bonanzaville episode and one-room schoolhouses. Good morning, ladies. I have listened to your Bonanzaville episode at work by myself in the office in the middle of the night with all the lights out except for directly over my desk. This is a glutton for punishment. (laughs) No kidding. And when I heard you talking about being a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse, I thought I would drop you a note. My grandmother and I were quite tight when I was growing up. 
Our birthdays were three days apart, and we often told each other that September girls had to stick together. She was born just before 1900, and when she was 16, she was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. I asked her about that one time. She said that most of her students were younger than her, but she had some who were older. When questioned on how she was able to make that work, she told me that when she was working with one class, she had the other classes studying, with the older students helping the younger. She also said that quite often she didn't know what she needed to teach and that she would teach all day, go home, study everything she would need to teach for the next day, and the next day she would go teach what she had learned the night before. Apparently, it was an unending cycle. Anyway, thank you for bringing a smile to my face with thoughts of this wonderful woman. I miss her immensely. Please know that I enjoy your podcast very much and listen to it alone in the office in the dark whenever it comes out. And I thanked her for sending that because we had wondered about one-room schoolhouses, and so it was neat to hear her firsthand experience via her grandmother. That would have been very cool just to listen to the stories. I would have been happy to sit at her grandmother's feet and just listen. And Vanessa left us a comment at the website. Thank you for letting us know how much you are enjoying the podcast. We appreciate that. I want to give a shout out to Madam Aqua 2100 on YouTube. Thank you for your comments there. And then Drea is a new member of our Spooktacular crew who came in and shared some photos with us. And these were some really weird pictures that she got during a 2009 ghost tour in Princeton, New Jersey. And we posted one of the weirdest ones in the show notes for today. And I also put it up on our Instagram. When Denise has taken some pictures out at cemeteries, she's sometimes caught like one like streak of light blue that you could see. And I have seen people who've caught some white lights occasionally. This picture that she has looks like somebody was running around with a bunch of sparklers that were in red, blue, green, yellow. <laughs> it just, I don't know how in the world these were made. So if we believe that this wasn't people running around with a bunch of lights, it is the craziest picture I have ever seen. And she wrote about it. The cemetery dates back to pre-colonial times and is pretty tucked away from town, which told me that we're not getting any reflections from city lights here either. Nobody noticed anything strange during the tour. I was just walking around doing a point and click with my camera, a Finepix Digital. And I don't think that these could be bugs either just because the colors and they're really vibrant. It's not like a light color. Yeah, no, they're definitely not muted. They remind me of those tubes of lights that, that they decorate things with, yeah. like the houses and stuff where it's just a tube of a bunch of lights. Yeah, they look neon pretty much. Yes. She also said about some other experiences, I've had a lot of strange experiences. Unfortunately, I rarely have a camera on hand when reenacting at historical sites because we are supposed to be authentic. So she works as a reenactor as well. During a ghost tour of Charleston, North Carolina, both my boyfriend and I felt like a child was standing between us and was holding our hands. There was a noticeable cold spot and pressure on our hands for about three minutes. We could feel it melting away as we discussed it. I've also had multiple experiences at Fort Mifflin, Pennsylvania, while staying there. Once my ponytail was yanked so hard, I almost fell backwards. Can you imagine? And another time, a friend and I were sitting in the casements, talking by the fire, when we both felt like a person entered and was sitting at the other end of the room, watching us. This lasted 15 minutes, and we each got that ozone taste in our mouths. That's weird. Very weird. We encourage you guys to head over to our History Goes Bump page on Facebook and like it so that you start getting some notifications because we have been doing the HGB Live Daily, a little Facebook Live where we just touch base and talk about creepy, spooky, historical type things. Just do some interesting stuff with that. And we also have gotten serious about our HGB Running Club. 
Yes, we have. So I think most of the people started the challenge on February 19th of 2018. But we found a fun site that allows us to do virtual races together. So anybody in the world can participate and you can go to the Spooktacular crew and find the link there. But we're doing a virtual race for Edgar Allan Poe. It's the Edgar Allan Poe Challenge. And so whether you walk, run, crawl, however you get there, you just have to get the miles in to get your medal or your shirt. I believe it's a little over 22 miles and we set it up so that everybody tries to get it by March 31st. You have the whole year according to the website, but we wanted to kind of put a little fire. Yeah, a little bit of motivation there. And the medal is so cool. The shirts are really cool too. So I told Denise, I said, if they do the same one next year and they don't change up the medal, I'm going to go for the shirt. I know it was a hard choice. I went for the medal though because I like bling. Oh, and don't forget, I've been taking all of the deposits for the Key West trip. That's going to take place on July 13th, 2018 through July 16th. I'm meeting in Key West. And so all of the information is at the Spooktacular crew under the events. Even if you can't get your deposit in by the end of the month, as long as there's space, you can sign up for the trip whenever you want. The only thing is, is some of the tours and things may sell out, but you can come at any time and register and sign up. And so all the information is there and we would love to have you join us in the beautiful Florida Keys this year. If you are planning to join us for our live show in Louisville, Kentucky, we had said that the tour that we were doing over at Waverly Hills Sanatorium afterward, the 8 p.m. tour, was already sold out. Well, there are a few people who are going to be doing the 9.30 p.m. tour. So if you were not able to get tickets to go on the tour with us, you can go ahead and get tickets for the 9.30 tour. And there will be some people from the live show that will be going on that as well. I know Jerry's definitely going And I'm thinking about going a second time. I don't think I can get Denise to go through there a second time. Well, it would depend. If enough of our listeners have signed up for that one, I will probably go back because I love our listeners just that much. want to thank Kelly for our intro. If you guys want to do an intro, we'd love to have you do it. You don't have to be an executive producer. So just let us know at historygoesbump at gmail.com and we'll get you set up. And also, if you want to know about all of the different events that we have going on, I'm getting better about putting them up on the website. So you go to historygoesbump.com, just click on the events tab, and we will have all of the events there. And as a matter of fact, I will go ahead and put up the information on the running challenge that we're doing as well so that you have that there in case you're not on Facebook. I think that's all the business we needed to get into. Is that right? I think so, but it's going to be a busy year. So if we forgot something, we apologize. We have some Apple podcast reviews to share. First up, we have Julie Hutchinson, When Local History Gets Spooky, five stars. This podcast is well made and the hosts are friendly and easy to listen to. It's obvious they've put a lot of preparation into each episode. I like to put this podcast on while I do my work, but oh man, I have to tell you how delighted I was with episode number 236, Haunted Cemeteries number seven, because I'm from Berwyn, Illinois, and Waldem Cemetery is just right there. I grew up knowing it as simply the Jewish cemetery, and we pass it on our way to the mall or when we take the shortcut back home, turn at the Taco Bell. I had no idea this apparently mundane fixture of our community had so much history. Next time I go home, I will definitely go explore it. See, I live on the East Coast now, so hearing stories about my old neck of the woods was wonderful. Like finding a little gem. Thanks again, guys. Well, glad that you enjoyed that, Julia. And I always love it when we get these little gems, Denise, because I think, oh, that's not going to be very popular. Nobody's going to know anything about it. And those are the ones we always hear from people that are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you talked about that. Then we have Slybo TXXX, Intellectually Spooky and Fun, five stars. If you're looking for a fun and informative show, this is it. The ladies have done a great job putting together a wonderful show that's completely listener supported, meaning no commercials. 
So if you're looking for a show that tells stories of spooky places and the strange and unusual in a PG format, you found it. Thank you, ladies. Keep up the good work. Thank you for that. And finally, Dolly Online, best podcast ever in all caps, Denise, five stars. Today is a sad day. I started listening to HGB about four months ago and was determined to listen to all episodes in order, starting with number one. Today's a sad day because I've caught up to the most recent broadcast. I cannot say enough good things about this awesome duo. They've grown so much and so have I. Of the 245 episodes to date, I have 172 of them saved to my bucket book that I plan to visit. If you want true history that's been researched to the best of their ability and the awesomeness of the supernatural things emitted from the history books, this is the place you need to be. Amazingly, they are listener supported, so no one ever trying to sell you anything. I became an executive producer, aka supporting fan, and now have even more bonus podcasts to listen to. I cannot wait to meet these gals in person and thank them for the hours of enjoyment they've added to my life. Keep up the amazing work, ladies. And I'm still laughing about the rubber ducky outtake. Looking forward to many more saved episodes and additions to the bucket book. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dolly. We appreciate that. We appreciate all of you for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Rocky Mellon. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.